The book of Psalms is referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament. It's a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. The Psalms were sung in the temple by God's people corporately, and they were used in times of private devotion like many of us do even today. We're talking about a book that that's considered so important that uh, if you've ever owned one of those little pocket-sized New Testaments, it probably included the book of Psalms in it, even though that book is not part of the New Testament. It's a book that not only informs, but transforms us. It's a book that appeals to the whole person. It informs our thinking. It, it arouses our emotions. It directs our wills. It sparks our imaginations as we engage with this book of the Bible. It's a book that, that's meant to put a a song in the hearts of God's people. It's meant to move beyond theology to worship of God in light of those truths as we come face to face with who he is and who we are. In the Psalms, we encounter the beauty of God's character, nature, and being, and we encounter the fullness of the human condition and experience. The reason that we've entitled this series Songs of the Savior is this. The author of Hebrews tells us that these 10 particular Psalms ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus, in his coming. And so uh, as we look at these 10 particular psalms, we're we're looking at as a collection of of works that are meant to cause us to sing of the goodness, glory, and grace of God. We're asking the question, how are we meant to sing of the goodness, glory, and grace of God revealed most surely in the face of Jesus Christ? And so I've said this over the last couple weeks, that we sing psalms of praise to Jesus as our Savior, as our King, as our coming Judge. We sing psalms of lament to Jesus as our high priest and advocate. We sing psalms of thanksgiving to Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. We sing psalms of remembrance to Jesus as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment in him. We sing psalms of confidence to Jesus because he's trustworthy. He's worthy of our trusting in him. And we sing psalms of wisdom to him because he is wisdom personified and the source of all wisdom as Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. The, the heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope for this series is that we would delight in God, that we would see his goodness, glory, and grace revealed in the face of Jesus, and that in seeing and delighting in him, that our lives would become more and more a song of praise. That's what we're after. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up this morning to Psalm 45. That's where we will be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can open up to this morning's passage there, some way about the middle, uh, midway through uh, the scriptures. If you open up, you should find the book of Psalms, pretty thick book of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, you can take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll go ahead and get to work. God, this psalm speaks of a king a king full of grace and truth, a king who fights for the cause of meekness and righteousness, a king whose throne shall be established forever, speaks of a glorious bride to be presented to that king in all of her splendor. Jesus, we are your bride. The fulfillment of this psalm is ultimately found in you. And so I pray that we would see you in all of your beauty and splendor this morning as our glorious groom king and that we would grab hold of the implications of what it means to be the bride of Christ and that as we leave this place, we would find a song in our hearts in light of the truth that we will encounter this morning in your word. 
Holy Spirit, would you awaken our slumbering hearts? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear the truth of your word this morning? We ask all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Psalm 45 is, is a really interesting uh, chapter of the Bible. It's, it's what's known as a hymn celebrating a royal wedding. It's a love song. We, we don't know exactly which of Israel's kings this particular song was first written for, but it was likely used on more than one occasion as part of a wedding ceremony. It's not something we see very often in our culture, the celebration of, of the wedding of a head of state, something that does happen elsewhere in the world. If you're anything like my wife, maybe you watched William and Kate's wedding. You spent hours uh, just glued to the television set watching that unfold. And so you can kind of picture in that setting, at certain points in the ceremony, there were songs that were sung. There, were, there was instrumentation that was brought together, and the choir or the congregation would sing as a part of that actual ceremony. This is much like what we encounter here in Psalm 45, very similar to what you see in the UK. It was customary for people in Israel to celebrate the wedding of the king. You encounter here in Psalm 45 a song that would have been included in the royal wedding of the Davidic king. The lyrics of this song declare the excellencies of the king himself, and they also speak of the presentation of the bride to her groom, as well as instruction in helping her to come alongside the king as his queen. It's kind of the summary and I've already mentioned it, so I'm not really giving away the ending. I've already done that this morning. But what we'll find is that this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and his bride, the church. And so there's much for us in this particular psalm this morning as the bride of Christ. This is the first psalm in this series that we've encountered that actually has an introduction. It says, To the choir master, according to lilies, a moscow of the sons of Korah, a love song. That, that reference to lilies I don't know about you, it reminds me of the second chapter of the Song of Solomon, uh, where Solomon's beloved declares, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And Solomon responds, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. The lily represents beauty. It stands out amongst the crowd. Psalm 45 is a song of beauty. It's meant to stand out, which is why this psalm is declared to be a moscow. A moscow is a, a skillfully artistically shaped psalm. It's likely referencing the matching of words to a beautiful arrangement of music, which explains why it would have been declared to be of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were Levitical musicians put in charge of temple worship. This psalm is meant not to be dissected, but to be sung. It's meant to overwhelm the heart. It's meant to create that anticipation that you feel when you're waiting for the doors to be open and the bride to be presented and to walk down the aisle. That's what we're meant to encounter at a heart level as we take a look at Psalm 45. Verse 1, the psalm begins like this. It says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. These words were, were likely sung, as I mentioned before, by the congregation or the choir, but they include a personal element as well. It's as if the songwriter is telling us of his experience of piecing together this song, of what it was like to be inspired to compose it. His heart overflows with these recorded words. His lips are not content with leaving these words on the page. Again, these lyrics are not simply meant to be read. They're meant to be declared. They're meant to be sung with great affection. He says this in verse 2. About the king, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The psalmist declares the beauty of the king, and it's not just an outward beauty, but an inward beauty as well. He's a gracious king. 
And thus, gracious words flow from his lips. As we'll see in the verses to come, this is the kind of king, the kind of leader that most people long for, that many of us have never truly experienced in their fullness. Verse 3 goes on to say, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. The king is described as not only gracious, but just. He fights for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He's worthy of praise for his military prowess. He's a warrior who doesn't miss his mark. Under his leadership and authority, his people are protected as his enemies fall. He's full of grace, but he's also full of truth. Now, verse 6 is where it gets a little weird. The psalmist begins to use some divine language, some language that's a bit peculiar. He says this in verses 6 and 7. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and kasha. Now, who in the world are these verses addressed to? It's kind of strange. If it's God, how do you explain this sudden change in subject without so much as a transition? And yet, if it's the king of Israel, how can he be called God? Nowhere in the Old Testament is the word Elohim, the word used for God in the Old Testament, at least one of them. Nowhere in the Old Testament is that word used to address a human being. It would have been blasphemous to address an Israelite king as God. Take Jesus, for example. Jesus was declared by the Pharisees to be a blasphemer for declaring himself to be God in the flesh. Judaism, it's monotheistic, meaning the worship of one God, not multiple gods. So what do you do with these verses? What are we to make of, of these verses? I think in, in the original context, the psalmist must be shifting his focus from the king to God himself. It's the only way to avoid the issue of blasphemy. And so verse 6, God's uprightness and love of righteousness is the support system, the very reason that the Israelite king, verse 4, can fight for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. But regardless of how you, uh, how you interpret verses 6 and 7 in the original context, there's something bigger going on here. The author of Hebrews is very helpful to reveal to us that these verses are prophetic and messianic. In other words, they point to Jesus. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 of his writing. He says, but of the Son, Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Almost verbatim, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, right? This psalm ultimately points to a coming hero who will establish his throne forever. A coming hero who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. A coming hero who will experience the fullness of God's anointing. A coming hero who's worthy of being addressed as divine, like none of us are. To find the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm in some Israelite king would be to glorify man as a god. Derek Kidner in his commentary says it this way. He says, this is an example of Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand a more than human fulfillment. This psalm must look to Jesus. 
And we'll do that in just a moment. But first, coming back to verse 8, the royal wedding of the king continues to say this, From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. You you get this, this idea of this majestic gathering, this instrumentation that just screams of the majesty of the king. God's blessings are bestowed upon him in light of his faithfulness and character. He receives the respect of his subjects. No one's tweeting about him in, in horrific terminology. No one's talking poorly about him on Facebook. He's a, he's a man worthy of respect. As part of the wedding ceremony, he's surrounded by majesty. And part of that majesty is the queen herself. She shares in his splendor and beauty. In verse 10, the psalm shifts attention to her. It says this, it says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the, of the people. The, the bride's loyalty is now to her husband. This is this idea of leaving and cleaving that we encounter in Genesis 2, where we're told, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The queen has a new identity that's hers in relation to the king. His love is for her, and her loyalty is to him. In her new role, she will, she'll know the favor of the king's subjects, and she will experience the fullness of the inheritance that comes with being united to the king. It goes on to say in verse 13, All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king, and her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Here you get the bride described in in all of her beauty, having been prepared to be presented to her husband-to-be. She's full of joy. She's full of gladness. Her bridesmaids and she, they make their way to the sanctuary. She's radiant. She's ready. She's ready for that moment. In order to put a bow on this song, the writer concludes with a promise in verses 16 and 17, this promise of future blessings that will come as a result of this royal union. Coming back to the king as the recipient of these words, it says this, it says, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The king's name will be remembered forever in the generations that will come from him. His legacy will live on through the ages. He will be praised forever. Which leads me to a couple of questions that we've been seeking to answer week in and week out throughout the course of this series thus far. The first of which is this. How does this psalm point to Jesus? Probably a little easier to see the fulfillment of this psalm in Christ as opposed to some of the other psalms that we've looked at thus far, right? Every Israelite king failed to live up to this ideal represented here. Every human leader really has failed to live up to this ideal. But the ideal king did eventually come. See traces of him everywhere in this psalm, both in his first coming and his second coming. This psalm, Psalm 45, speaks of a king full of grace and truth. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John goes on to say in chapter 1 of his writing, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Psalm 45 speaks of a king clothed in splendor and majesty. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at Psalm chapter 2. That Jesus is the king in the lineage of David through whom God has established his eternal throne. That Jesus is the death-conquering, sin-conquering, Satan-conquering king whose kingdom shall never end. In the book of Revelation, you get this picture of the host of heaven surrounding the throne of Jesus singing these words. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Psalm 45 speaks of a king who fights for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Jesus doesn't just fight for the cause of truth. He is the truth. Going back to the I Am series, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. He's the embodiment of meekness and righteousness. Psalm 45 speaks of a warrior king whose arrows hit their mark. Under his leadership and authority, his enemies fall If you read the book of Revelation chapter 1, we encounter Jesus armed with words of truth coming forth from his mouth that cut to the heart like a sword. His words are powerful enough to bring conviction to us, his people, and to bring about the fall of those who are hostily opposed to him. He will not lose the war between good and evil. Going back to verses 6 and 7, those peculiar words, Jesus is the only king worthy to be called God. These verses are are prophetic and messianic. They've got Jesus written all over them. Jesus has been coronated, according to these verses, anointed with the Holy Spirit uh, at his baptism. He's ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, and his kingdom will reign forever. And it's a kingdom filled with righteousness because he's a righteous king. He's a king that, as Jonathan Edwards uh, once put it, in whom there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, I love these words that that Edwards put to paper. He says this. He says, There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. There meet in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. He goes on to say, There are conjoined in the person of Christ infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. In the person of Christ are conjoined an exceeding spirit of of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. In Christ do meet together self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. That's unbelievable, people. That's the kind of king that you encounter in Psalm 45. One of infinite justice and yet infinite grace. One of infinite glory and yet infinite humility. One of infinite majesty and yet infinite meekness. That's your king. That's Jesus, church. And you and I, we're his bride. This wedding song that makes up Psalm 45 points to something so much bigger. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5. He says, referencing, alluding to Genesis 2, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says this. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That the human institution of marriage is meant to put on display the covenant between Jesus and his bride. 
you and I, his church. It's meant to show the world how Jesus feels about and relates to his redeemed. In other words, if you're married, your marriage is meant to be a window into the inner workings of the gospel. Using the wedding language of Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself up for us that he might present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. He is the the groom king and we are his bride purchased with his precious blood. Which brings me to the remaining verses that make up this song which ultimately tell in their final fulfillment of you and I, the church. Verse 10, in the same way that the bride in Psalm 45 is expected to leave her old identity behind, so we must put off the old self with its practices, Colossians 3, and put on the new self as his redeemed. His affairs become our affairs. Maybe one of the most critical things I could say, particularly in our Bible Belt context, Christianity is not just about a wedding, but a marriage. It's not just about being converted into something. So much more than our conversion. It's about an ongoing relationship with the groom, King Jesus. It's about living in light of the new identity that's ours in relation to him. It's about leaving the old self behind and cleaving to Jesus as a new creation. Verse 11, as the king desires his bride's beauty, so Christ loves you deeply. He's enthralled with you. Do you believe that? That's hard to believe, right? You gotta get up every morning and tell yourself that particularly as you look in the mirror. He's captivated by you. You are his beloved. That's how he feels about you. Not because you're lovely in and of yourself, but because he's made you lovely. He gave his life for you and has robed you in his righteousness. And as the bride is to submit in loyalty to the king, so we are to submit in loyalty to Jesus. Again, it's that Ephesians 5 language, sacrificial love and humble submission coming together. It's this idea of being so caught up in the beauty of the king that we long to please him. As Tim Keller says in his devotional on the Psalms, he says this about Psalm 45. He says, we should be as smitten with his beauty, Jesus' beauty, as a new spouse, for that is what we are. And as is the case with the bride in Psalm 45, with our submission to the king comes our dignity at being by his side. Verse 12, as the bride of the king, we we have an inheritance that's ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with the king himself. Verses 13 through 15 of Psalm 45, like a bride getting ready to be presented to her groom, we will one day be presented to Jesus as his bride, the church. Revelation 19, beautiful chapter of the Bible, talks about the marriage supper of the lamb that is to come. He has already adorned us with his righteousness to wear on that great day, as Revelation 7 tells us. And yet, at the same time, he's preparing us by growing us in righteousness. We're becoming what we've already been declared to be in Christ, righteous. As God presented the first woman to the first man in a garden so very, very long ago, so we will one day be presented to Jesus. The doors will open, and there he will be, and we will see him face to face. Even verses 16 and 17, the final two verses of this psalm, find their fulfillment in Christ. As he brings many sons to glory, Hebrews 2. Jesus, the eternal king, he'll never be forgotten. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will declare his excellencies forever. And we get to play a part in that. As we point more and more people to Jesus, we expand the reaches of his kingdom. As we pass down the faith to the next generation, we participate in carrying forth his legacy, creating more and more sons and daughters 
of the king. More and more people who will declare his excellencies. It's a pretty incredible psalm. It really is. And it's, it's, in its ultimate fulfillment, it's, it speaks of a relationship with God that's incredibly deep and personal. And so I think one question for us to wrestle with this morning is this. Do, do, do you know him in this way? Do you know God in an intimate way? Do you know God in a personal way? Not, not, not ritual, but rather relationship. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with this God? If not, I'd like to extend an invitation to the wedding to you this morning. Let me read to you one of Jesus's parables found in Matthew 24. It's entitled The Parable of the Wedding Feast. Very appropriate for this morning. Uh, Matthew 22, beginning in, in verse 1, it says this. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them. That is the chief priests and the Pharisees. He spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he sent to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the Attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Very interesting parable. We could spend an entire morning just unpacking this, this one parable of Jesus. But a couple of things that, that I notice in this parable, I think that are critical in light of Psalm 45. It, it's that uh, the, the king declares to, to as many as will listen, come. Like there's an invitation to the masses. That's the invitation to you and I this morning to come and to be a part of this, this royal wedding of, of the king of creation. And, and it's, it's an invitation to both bad and good, as the parable tells us. But it, it's, it's critical to note as well that, that there is a particular attire to this wedding, that the marriage supper of the lamb has a particular dress code. It requires a wedding garment, a robe of righteousness. And here's the deal. You and I, we can't produce that garment. We can't sew it. We can't make it. We don't have the funds to buy it. It must be given by the king himself. We cannot make ourselves righteous enough to stand before God on the day of the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Revelation 19. Our garments are dirty. They're stained with sin. But here's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus lived the life that you and I can never live. That Jesus died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. And in what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, Jesus says, your sin for my righteousness. He bears our sin on the cross and he offers to robe us in his perfect righteousness. You and I, we're, we're invited to the wedding. 
I'm inviting you, if you're not a Christian in this place this morning, to come. But you must receive the invitation by grace through faith. You must acknowledge that apart from Jesus, you do not have the proper attire. You must come to him with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith and receive his righteousness as your wedding garment. The invitation is yours. The question is, will you receive it this morning? And if you are a Christian, the other question that that we've been seeking to answer each week of this series is this. What's our song to sing? As the bride of Christ, what are we meant to sing? The heart sings of that in which it delights. What are we meant to delight in as we look at Psalm 45? As I've done in previous weeks, I'll offer you a couple of lyrics that I think are worthy of including on the track, and you may add more lyrics than this, but a couple that I see here that I think are critical that we sing as the church. Number one, he is our perfect king in whom we encounter infinite justice and grace, infinite glory and humility, infinite majesty and meekness, diverse excellencies that only Jesus could embody. This psalm presents us with the opportunity to sing of the excellencies of our king, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He fights for the cause of justice and righteousness. His throne is an eternal throne. If you've ever been frustrated with human leaders in the world as we know it, there will come a day when you will never have to experience that. You will be under the reign of a good leader forever. He's worthy of our praise and adoration. And here's the other lyric that I would include on the track coming out of Psalm 45. We are the blood-bought bride of this king. You and I. He shed his blood in order to unite us to himself. He bore our sins so that we might be robed in his dignity and righteousness, which is just unbelievable. Not only is he worthy of our adoration and praise, he's worthy of our loyalty and devotion. As the church, the bride of Christ, you can think of it this way. This life is dress rehearsal. Welcome to the dress rehearsal. This is Friday night. The rest of your life is Friday night in preparation for a Saturday wedding that we will one day be presented to the king like a bride on her wedding day. We will see Jesus face to face and sit around the banqueting table with him. I cannot wait for that. I don't know about you. And we will be overwhelmed with joy as we sit in his presence. And so today is dress rehearsal. As you leave this place, Dress rehearsal. When you wake up tomorrow, dress rehearsal. When you wake up Tuesday, dress rehearsal. And dress rehearsal is really about a couple of things. Number one, loyalty. And number two, anticipation. Loyalty to the groom, the declaration, I'm not going anywhere. You put a ring on it, Jesus, when you died for me, and and I am yours. And two, anticipation of that moment when we shall see his face. A longing for that. A really, truly believing that that will be better than this when he comes to set all things right and we will see him face to face. And so as I've asked week in and week out of this series, are these lyrics part of the song of your heart? Because we have a song to sing and not just in the coming moments, but as we prepare to leave this place, as we move into a time of reflection, a song that we carry as we walk out of this auditorium, we have an opportunity to sing with our lives of a good and glorious king, a king who would die for his people a king who gave himself up for us so that we might enjoy him and his kingdom now and forever. So I I invite you as we move into that time of reflection to spend the next few moments considering these lyrics that make up the song of the church. And then we'll move into a time of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here and we uh, representing the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. 
And as you come and receive the elements this morning, get that picture of, of the king in mind, the king who stooped down into the slums of human history to make you his bride.